Welcome back to another episode of Unjustly, a social injustice podcast. My name is Sandy, and this is my co-host, Stephanie. Hello. So today we have another innocent or guilty episode. So, <laughs> so when we started this podcast, or I, I guess I should say when I first came to Stephanie with this idea, I was like, I want to do a podcast on wrongful convictions. And that's where like it started. It was just like that type of topic. And then the more we talked and the more um, ideas that we started coming up with, it turned into a social injustice podcast mm-hmm. because essentially that's been like our life when it comes to our background and education and the topics that we talk about amongst ourselves. And then it just kept evolving. And then I think once um, once we started the Instagram and once we were reachable by people, we started getting a lot of messages from people who are currently incarcerated um, and their families reaching out to us, you know, asking for us to tell their story because they're claiming their innocence. And so I'm sure some of them are guilty, <laughs> which is why we decided to call this innocent or guilty because it, it, we can't say for sure. We're not the detectives or anything. Um, but because we know that wrongful convictions happen way more often than we would have ever assumed, um, I wanted to make sure that we did do these type of cases and that we did kind of bring forth because as we know, people who end up getting exonerated had a whole team of people behind them. Mm -hmm. You know, it took a village to get that person exonerated. And so I kind of want to be a part of that village. Um, (laughs) And so I think my heart has just been completely drawn to these types of cases. And I have a whole list of other episodes I want to do. But every single time one of these cases comes up, I'm like, I have to do it. So here's the third one (laughs) of innocent or guilty. Uh, So I got my sources from the Terrifying Case of Julius Jones by Christina Baker, um, a special, it's like a docu-series episode. I'm not really sure what to call it, but it was on uh, 2020 and it's called The Last Defense. Mm. It was a three-part series. That's why I'm not sure if I should call it an episode or a docu-series. A docu-series, but, no? Okay, docu-series. I don't know. Um, so that one was really good. I got uh, information from the Justice for Julius website and a local article in Oklahoma News 4. And so I had already watched the docuseries before I started reading into any other thing. Um, So there was a lot of other, I would say, articles and websites that I looked at and read, but didn't get any new information from what was already in the docuseries. So I'm not going to include that in my sources. But so those are the main points that I got everything from. So this is the story of Julius Jones. On July 28, 1999, in the suburb of Edmond, Oklahoma, Paul Howell was with his daughters and his sister, Megan Toby, and they were shopping for school supplies and getting ice cream. Howell was a well-known businessman and a deacon at a church. At the end of the night, they pulled into his parents' driveway. But as he arrived, he was confronted by a young black man wearing a red bandana, pointing a gun at him. The gunman was attempting to steal Howell's 1997 Suburban. But in the process, the gunman shot him in front of his sister and daughters. Howell was later pronounced dead at the hospital. Howell, being a very well-liked white businessman who was gruesomely murdered in front of his family in a wealthy suburb by a black man, the police received immediate pressure to find the killer, and this investigation took top priority. The murder case took over the local media, and the search was on for the suburban and a black male with a red bandana white shirt, and a stocking cap with about an inch of hair sticking out of it, which is the eyewitness description that Howell's sister gave. 
A few days later, the Suburban was found in a grocery store parking lot just a few blocks away from a chop shop owned by Kermit Lottie. Lottie was already known by police as he just so happened to be a police informant. So police knew they could ask him questions. Lottie said that the Suburban was brought into the shop to sell car parts by Liddell King. King also happened to be a police informant, so they brought him in for questioning. Hmm. Teresa Pfeiffer and Tony Fike were the investigators on the case. King tells investigators that he was just the middleman, as that is what he's known to do. He states that Julius Jones had driven up with the Suburban looking for his help along with Chris Jordan. And Chris Jordan also goes by Westside, but I'm not going to call him that. (laughs) (laughs) King said Jones was wearing a red bandana and stocking cap. King agreed to help, but because Slotty knew the car might be the subject of a murder, he refused to take it. King states he had no idea it was connected to a homicide, and when he confronted Jones about it, he said that Jones admitted to the killing. So police believed they had their man. They surrounded Jones's mom's home along with helicopters and news stations, but they weren't able to enter yet without a warrant. However, Jones was not there. Police eventually tracked down Jordan at a payphone, and after receiving a tip, they found Jones at Jordan's brother's home. When they were finally able to search Jones's parents' home, they found the red bandana and the gun used in the murder. Jones was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Jordan was also convicted and was given 30 years. Sounds like a cut and dry case, right? Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for the but. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> but <laughs> mm-hmm. let's look into the details to see how this case has gained the attention of multiple celebrities, including Kim Kardashian West, John Legend, love him, Common, and multiple NBA and NFL players. Mm-hmm. So in the 90s, Edmond, Oklahoma was a predominantly white, wealthy neighborhood, which occurred after integration began in Oklahoma City. Many moved out of those neighborhoods into Edmond. At the time, it was about 85% white. So let's look at Julius Jones's version of the story. Jones was a great athlete and talented basketball player. He got along with a lot of people and was very likable. Jones was a member of the National Honor Society, and he was one of two black people in the top 10% of his graduating class. He went on to attend the University of Oklahoma on an academic scholarship. But Jones wasn't a complete angel. He dreamt of having money and wanted to have nice things, so he started doing petty thefts and got in trouble with the law a couple of times. His ability to be friends with many different types of people led him to also keep some bad company. One of those bad influences was Chris Jordan, a former basketball teammate of his, who was known to have ties with gang members. So on the night of July 28, 1999, Jones claims that he was with his family, which was about 20 minutes away from where the crime took place. Jones, his parents, and his siblings all claim the same exact story. They were playing Monopoly, they had spaghetti for dinner, and Jones got upset at his sister for eating the last piece of his cookie cake from his birthday that had just passed. I would be furious if someone did that today. If anyone had the last piece of my cake or my cookie yeah. or my anything. Yeah, in no. the last defense, when they were interviewing the sister, like she was like, he was so mad at me. Uh, <laughs> and even in his like um, interview in prison, he's like, she ate my last cookie piece. <laughs> so same. <laughs> 
Jones's mom took his brother Antonio to work at 9.30 p.m. and Jones was still home at that time. Jones states that later Jordan had told him that he was locked out of his grandmother's home and asked if he could stay with him. Jones let him stay in the upstairs room that night. The following day, Jones said that King called looking for Jordan, but he wasn't with him anymore, so King then asked for his help instead with selling car parts. Jones knew this was something suspicious, but he was hoping to get some money out of it, so he agreed. He followed King to the grocery store, which is caught on camera. Also, this is the grocery store where the suburban was found, just Mm. FYI. And then he followed him to the auto shop to sell the suburban he had acquired. Jones said he never got in the suburban, though, and he didn't know that there was a murder involved with the robbery. After Lottie decided not to take the suburban, King came out to tell Jones that the suburban had possibly been involved in the murder. Soon after, police had called Jones's parents' house looking for him. Jones had answered the phone, but he got scared and said Julius wasn't home. Afraid of the police, he hung up and fled the home and went to stay at Jordan's brother's home. The next day, the police received a tip of Jones's whereabouts and they found him and dragged him out of the home without shirt or shoes on and started taking him to the station. So I hate when I hear stories like that because then we have people like Dylan Roof who kills a bunch of people and then he's taken to Burger King. He was hungry. Yeah. (laughs) Poor guy. Yeah. (laughs) But then we have Jones who's dragged out, Mm -hmm. wasn't allowed to put shoes on or a shirt. Like I understand he... They suspect that he murdered someone. I don't think that means they can't put a shirt on him. I don't know. Um, He also says, though, that the cops eventually pulled over and told him to get out and run. I dare you. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Jones said he didn't run away because he knew never to run from cops. Right. Nate Tarver, a former Oklahoma City Police Department spokesperson, said he doesn't think this would have happened and hopes it didn't. But there's no way to know for sure. Police raided Jones's parents' home looking for evidence. They were led straight to where the murder weapon was and the bandana because Chris Jordan was waiting in the cop car outside the home telling police exactly where the murder weapon was hidden. If you're not tracking so far, the weapon and bandana were found in the room where Jordan spent the night after the murder. Mm. But inside Julius Jones's home. In his parents' home. Yeah. But during the police investigation of the home, they completely demolished everything inside. I've seen footage of what it looks like when investigators comb through a home for evidence, and it's thorough, it's methodical, um, but what was done to Jones's parents' home was chaos. Even though they already had the murder weapon, they proceeded to break and destroy everything in the home. Concussion grenades were used, and it shattered all glass and windows that were in the home. Ketchup and mustard were sprayed all over the floor. Laundry detergent was also spilled all over the floor. Totally necessary Mm -hmm. in a raid. Because there might be evidence inside the ketchup bottle. Mm -hmm. All of the family's clothes were thrown on the floor, and they walked all over them. By the time they were done, it looked like a hurricane hit the home, and it was unrecognizable. The only conclusion that could come of this is that the police were trying to send a message. Mm -hmm. And I saw footage of the wreckage of the home of what it looked like. It's insane. Mm -hmm. There's no way that was a police investigation. Yeah. So let's talk about the men that gave investigators Jones's name. First, we have Kermit Lottie, the guy who owned the chop shop and who saw the suburban come in. 
As we mentioned before, he was already a police informant uh, during this time and had been for a while. Lottie was a convicted felon and was known to take in stolen cars in his shop. He was really good friends with Liddell King and tells police he brought in the Suburban. Lottie had pending federal drug charges and was waiting to be sentenced at the time of the trial. He was looking at 40 years. The defense was told that Lottie was not receiving any leniency or deals on his own case in return for his testimony on Jones's case. However, Fike, the investigator, wrote a letter to the prosecutors in Lottie's case requesting leniency, specifically stating his help in the Joneses case, saying that the case would have gone unsolved if it wasn't for him. Lottie ended up serving only four years out of the potential 40 he could have served. Seems very. Mm-hmm. Digging in a little deeper into his past, Lottie has a history of providing information to the police for cases and then getting all of his own charges either dismissed or with an extremely lenient sentence. In 2006, Oklahoma City Court of Appeals ruled that the prosecution should have disclosed Fike's letter for leniency in Lottie's case. However, the court also ruled that the prosecution's failure to do so did not affect the outcome of the trial. Don't forget about Lottie because he will come up again later in the story. Hmm. Then King gets brought in for questioning. Again, he's a police informant as well. And King is the one who implicates Jones. King is a habitual offender and with three felonies under his belt, uh, he just so happened to be facing a minimum of 20 years for check fraud. After King gave police information regarding Jones and testified against him in court, King's check fraud charge ended with just probation instead of the 20 years in prison. Then we have Chris Jordan. Remember, Jordan had a history of affiliations with gang members. So when he was brought in for questioning, the investigators told him that he didn't fit the description the eyewitness gave, which was a lie. And they encouraged him that it would be in his benefit to work with them to help convict Jones. Essentially, they were hoping to have Jordan cooperate King's statement, so he took the opportunity, as any criminal would. The problem with Jordan, though, is that his story kept changing. An article I read said it changed at least six times. Also, Jordan continuously and accidentally implicated himself during his statements. As an example, Jordan would say things like, I pointed, I mean, he pointed the gun. So he kept accidentally referring to himself as a gunman and had to correct himself by saying him instead of I. Jordan would also say he never touched the gun. Uh, he was just the lookout, but then he would say he might have touched the gun. And don't forget, Jordan was the one who spent the night at Jordan's house after the murder and led police to where the gun was hidden in the room he slept in. For his involvement in the murder, Jordan was given life with all but 30 years suspended. So he basically was given 30 years for testifying against Jones. Miraculously, though, Jordan served only 15 years and was just let free to walk the streets. He wasn't even given probation. So let's look at the evidence because so far all we have is the statements of two other criminals. So we have the eyewitness testimony of the victim's sister who says the gunman was a young African-American male wearing a red bandana and a stocking cap. She stated, though, that his hair was sticking out of the stocking cap about an inch. So nine days prior to the murder, Jones was actually picked up for reckless driving. He was not charged, but a booking photo was taken. This picture shows that close to when the murder took place, Jones actually had really short hair, and there's no way any hair would have been sticking out of a stocking cap. 
Jordan, on the other hand, had really thick cornrows at the time of the murder. Hmm. Then we have a suburban. According to King, Jones was the one who brought the suburban to him. However, Jones's fingerprints were not found anywhere in the suburban. Then we have the video footage showing Jones and King together at the convenience store where the suburban was later found. But Jones states that King had asked for his help in selling the car parts, which he knew he was dealing with shady things, but ultimately he was doing it for the money. As we know, Jones was involved in petty crimes for money. So although there is footage of him in the convenience store, it doesn't definitively prove he was involved in the murder. Finally, there's the infamous red bandana and gun, which was found in Jones's parents' home with the help of Jordan. At the time of the trial and conviction, the red bandana had not been tested for DNA. Since then, it has finally been tested, but we will get into that later in the story. Just remember that Jones was convicted with no DNA evidence. And that's all the evidence we're working with. On top of the Joneses family giving him an alibi, and on top of the key witnesses also being criminals who benefited from testifying against him. Now onto the trial, which from the very beginning, before the court proceedings even started, it seemed problematic. Jones was appointed two public defenders, however, they were grossly unprepared for such a high court case. Robin Bruno had just graduated law school and had just passed the bar exam. She was inexperienced in capital cases. His other defense lawyer, David McKenzie, had no capital trial experience at the time, and he said he had a caseload of about 80 defendants. McKenzie wasn't able to meet with Jones that often. He also stated that the times he did speak with Jones, he wasn't able to get much information out of him anyway. Jones later states that he rarely had meetings with his lawyers. Jurors were an ongoing issue throughout the case as well. It was evident in the beginning when the prosecution took out a lot of potential jurors who were black for multiple reasons, such as being victims of crime. However, they kept white jurors who had similar circumstances. And we'll talk about the jurors again a little later. Mm -hmm. The sheriff involved in the case is definitely a notable figure as well. Bob Macy was called a cowboy and was tough on crime. Macy was described as one of the five most deadly prosecutors in the U.S., he was a local hero who was known to put away many criminals. At the time, Macy sent over 50 people to death row. However, about half of those death row convictions were eventually overturned due to various misconduct issues such as false informant testimony and scientific experts lying on the stand. Damn. Mm-hmm. That's like a, a bad stat yeah, to it have. Is. Half of them? Macy was vocal about Jones's case, and with him publicly saying he was seeking the death penalty, it basically poisoned the well. With that, it is important to know that police and lawyers are pressured to make defendants take plea deals to avoid lengthy trials. Um, so they essentially were trying to get a fast plea deal yeah. to get it over with. So the trial itself could easily be argued was handled very poorly by the defense. In the ABC 2020 docuseries um, on the case called The Last Defense, which was created by Viola Davis. Ooh. I love her. If you haven't seen How to Get Away with Murder, mm-hmm. highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, Jones's defense team was interviewed and they admitted that not only were they not experienced enough to handle a case like this, but in many instances, they completely failed at doing their job. Essentially, they were unprepared and it showed. 
When Jordan had taken the stand, the defense team had an opportunity to paint the picture that Jordan could have been the actual gunman and create doubt of Jones's guilt, but they failed to even try. McKenzie said he did a terrible job at cross-examining Jordan and blamed it on having a bad day. The fact that the description of the gunman having hair sticking out of the stocking cap actually matched Jordan more than Jones, but that was never brought up. The picture of Jones having no hair a few days prior to the murder was never shown or talked about. The fact that Jordan spent the night after the murder in the room where the weapon was found, which Jordan led police to, was not emphasized. At the time of the trial, when asked if the defense team had anything to add, Jones's lawyer said the defense rest. This would have been their opportunity to have the grand finale speech to summarize how there was no physical evidence, how Jordan matched the description more than Jones, how King was an informant and was going to benefit from his testimony and put that doubt in the juror's mind. The lawyer didn't call up Jones to the stand. In fact, McKenzie decided not to call up any witnesses for the defense at all. The lawyer also never presented Jones's alibi. He did not call up Jones's mother, father, brother, or sister who were all claiming he was with them at the time of the murder. How does this guy have a job? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing and defending his client. He was a very new lawyer. They had oh, no experience God. in a capital case. They didn't know what they were doing. The lawyer said the jury wouldn't have believed them. He also stated that Jones had written a letter to his girlfriend saying he wasn't home at the time of the murder, which contradicts his alleged alibi. But Jones says he never wrote such letter and had never even seen what the lawyer was talking about. In the 2020 docuseries, the lawyer said himself he doesn't remember why he didn't call the girlfriend to talk about the alleged letter, and he also said he can't show proof of the letter because he doesn't know where it is. He states that not calling the girlfriend and not having the actual letter might have been due to negligence on his part. The girlfriend later signed an affidavit saying Jones never told her such thing. So now Jones's fate is left in the hands of the jury. Unfortunately, a jury member came forward and said that he overheard a juror say they should take the N-word out back and shoot him and bury him under the jail. But when he told the judge of the statement he overheard at the time of the trial, he didn't include the racial slur specifically. The judge decided that there's no way to know the jury member was referring to Julius when he made that statement. He said he could have been talking about anyone. The judge asked the juror if they were impartial to the case and was able to make an unbiased decision, and the juror said yes, so the judge did not dismiss him. The juror who overheard the statement recently came out saying that a racial slur was used, Jones's new lawyers, who are currently fighting for his clemency, wanted to use this as new evidence to present that there was racial bias to get his case heard again. But the judge decided that if a racial slur was in fact used, um, he believed the juror would have mentioned it back then when it happened. Oh, so that issue no, was dismissed. Nice. Yeah, no, believe, believe the guy who just used a racial mm-hmm. slur. And, and like, why would he even admit it in the first place? Mm hmm. Well, he's saying that the juror who had said like, oh, I heard the statement didn't say that the N-word was used. Oh. He just said, oh, someone said they want to, they should just Mm. shoot him and bury him under the jail. And so now he's coming forward saying like, no, they said the N-word. And the judge said he should have told us that at that time. (laughs) He didn't. So I don't believe that's the case. I also want to point out real quick that the jury was told that Jordan would have to serve at least 30 years for his part in the crime. 
But like I said, he only served 15 years and didn't even get probation. Some of Jordan's cellmates, however, had said that Jordan told them he was only going to get 15 years. So he already knew this was going to happen. And the prosecution lied to the jury. Mm. So it sounds like he had a deal deal. already in place. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of the trial, during the prosecution speech, the prosecutor held her hand to her juror's head as if it were a gun, which was a violation under Oklahoma law. But the court dismissed the motions for a retrial because of it. And as we know, the jury came back with a guilty verdict and he was given the death penalty. So after Jones and Jordan were sent to prison, it is alleged that Jordan then told multiple people in prison that he was actually the one who killed Howell. He stated that Jones, in fact, was never even there where it occurred and that he was the one who hid the bandana in Jones's room. So two inmates came forward with this information and signed affidavits to prove Jordan's guilt. One inmate was serving life in prison without parole, and the other was on death row. So neither of them were eligible for any kind of compensation for their testimony. So essentially, both were coming forward with information because they believed it was the right thing to do. Unfortunately, this new information and affidavits were dismissed. So I want to circle back real quick and shed some light on who the investigators were in this case. Because it's been obvious in every wrongful conviction story that we have done that the lead investigators are the ones who can start the trajectory of a wrongful conviction. First, we have Teresa Pfeiffer. She was an investigator on a case in 1991 where a mother and 11-month-old baby were murdered in Edmond. They honed in on the father of the baby, saying he did it so he wouldn't have to pay child support. Dennis Dill, who was an Edmond police detective, found exculpatory evidence that the baby's father didn't do it, and he wrote a report discussing the evidence. Pfeiffer told Dill to revise the report and state that he made a mistake. Dill refused to do it, and he was immediately transferred from homicide to patrol, which sounds like a downgrade. That the way he made it sound sounds like. like a demotion. Mm-hmm. In the 2020 docuseries, Dill was interviewed and he stated that with Pfeiffer on the case, he knows she would have done anything to get the conviction of their suspect. Arthur Ganther is an Oklahoma County resident and in the 2020 docuseries, he talks about a time where he was in his car in Edmond and a man with a gun came up to his window and said, you sorry N-word. He forced him out of the car. The man went on to say, N-words ain't shit in this town. He was wearing plain clothes and didn't say he was police or showed a badge. Ganther was terrified, thinking he was a vigilante. Other police officers eventually arrived and the man started acting normal. That's when Ganther realized he was a cop. So Ganther filed a complaint with the police department. But he was told he was wasting his time because the cop was a big name person and had pull in the department. The police officer was criminal investigator Tony Fike. Oh, mm-hmm. the same man who was the investigator for Jones's case. Ganther ended up filing a lawsuit, but it was dismissed for lack of prosecution. It has now been over 20 years that Jones has been in prison. So in 2016, two attorneys, Amanda Bass and Dale Bosch, decided to take on Julius's case in hopes to get him exonerated. In 2015, a year before his new lawyers took the case, Oklahoma stopped executions because the experimental lethal injection they used were causing inmates to have a long, sufferable death. Oh, God. I know. 
However, in 2018, they brought the death penalty back with the use of nitrogen gas instead. So the countdown to Jones's execution is back on and the pressure to fight for his case is weighing heavy on a lot of people. This past year, the case has gained a lot of momentum and a lot of celebrities have began advocating for clemency for Jones. These celebrities include Kim Kardashian West, Common, John Legend, and many athletes. An NFL player wore a sketch of his face on his shoe. Yeah, so for anyone who knows about football, it was um, Baker Mayfield from the Browns who wore the shoes that had a picture, like a drawing Mm -hmm. or something of Julius Jones's face on them. So that's like a pretty big statement, Mm -hmm. you know? It is. Um, And when Jones was a child, he played basketball with Blake Griffin, and he too is now advocating for Jones. All have written letters to the governor of Oklahoma. And for those who don't know, Blake Griffin is the one that dated Kendall Jenner. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, who does he play for? He played for the Clippers. Another person whose attention this case got was Paris Powell, a death row exoneree. Powell was convicted and sent to death row in Oklahoma City, but was wrongfully convicted on the basis of false testimony from an informant. One of the leading causes of wrongful convictions in Oklahoma City is informant testimony. In Powell's case... Guess who was the informant who gave the false testimony that led to his wrongful conviction? That guy, Jordan? Our friend Kermit Lottie. Oh. The owner of the chop shop that the Suburban was taken to. My thing with, like, informants is if you're going to be an informant, you shouldn't get anything in return. Because then that leads to people wanting to be informants to get Mm -hmm. something out of it. Like, if you want to say something and you want to bring something to light, you should do it because you know that it's the right thing to do and Mm -hmm. not because you might get a lesser sentence or you might get some sort of deal for it or whatever the case is. Because then you kind of, for every true informant or every informant who actually has something like important, Mm -hmm. you have others who are just making shit up to try and, you know, get out of what they've been doing themselves. Watering down the informant. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, it makes sense. I've always been on the fence about that because I know there's been cases where like they were helpful and they were able to get good information out of it. But a lot of times it just seems like this toxic relationship Mm -hmm. between the police and the informants because the informants are always criminals, right? So they're usually doing their own thing, but they have to be criminals in order to be able to be in with the crowd and that's how they find out the information. So it's Mm -hmm. just like this really double-edged sword. And it's truly double-edged because now that I'm thinking of it, so like you've got everything going on with the informant as Mm -hmm. far as like maybe like trying to get some sort of deal. Mm -hmm. But then you also have it on the law enforcement side where they could also just be wanting to get information to quickly close up a case, Mm -hmm. right? So then you're like, just get me this information that I need. I don't care where it's coming from, how you get it. I won't ask any questions. Like, and so then you have this like, like inconsistent or like dirty information Mm -hmm. from both sides that leads to wrongful Wrongful convictions. convictions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So another odd addition to this case, a week before the murder, a car theft occurred at a pizzeria. Evidence pointed to Chris Jordan as the perpetrator. So when confronted, of course, Jordan said that Jones was once again responsible. So six weeks after the Howell murder and before the trial, Jones was charged with carjacking. And then in 2006, Jones had to plead guilty even though he said he wasn't there. Because if convicted, he was looking at 99 years in prison. But if he pled guilty, he would be given 12 years. So if his conviction for the murder was ever overturned, he would still be stuck in jail for life because of this other carjacking. 
But at least with a 12-year sentence, he could get out if he, you know, were ever exonerated of the murder. Unfortunately, it's a double-edged sword because now that he has pled guilty to the carjacking, if his murder case is ever brought back to court, the prosecutor can say, well, look at his history of carjacking. Um, so why would we believe he wasn't involved in the murder victim's carjacking as well? So is that why they're only seeking clemency? They're trying to find anything, anything and everything right now to see what sticks. Um, he's been through like all his appeals. So it's like, it doesn't yeah, seem like... I was going like... to say like just listening to everything that happened with like the investigation and the mm-hmm. trial, it sounds to me like he 100% didn't receive a fair trial. Mm-hmm. It sounds like he had an incompetent lawyer defense team yeah um which leads to you know i'm not saying he's guilty or innocent i'm just saying like the facts to me seem like he didn't get a fair trial and i think everyone at least deserves that but it's hard if he's already pled guilty and then it affects the whole carjacking thing Mm -hmm. and all of this stuff it sounds like it's really messy but i think that was one of the things that um came up with one of our other episodes or so i don't remember but just the fact that clemency you're not going back to court you're basically sticking to yes i did it or whatever Mm -hmm. but because of this this and this i should be let out but it would be i mean i'm sure it would be nice for him to be able to go back to court and prove in court like there is all of these reasons why i didn't do it or at the very least there's reasonable doubt exactly and the fact that he can't kind of sucks yeah every single time they try to do an appeal or say you know we have new evidence that just kept getting dismissed it kept getting rejected Every single time. So where are we today on the case? Jones's new lawyers are pushing for a new trial or clemency. Prior motions for retrial due to ineffective counsel was denied, mm-hmm. even though his prior counsel admits they mm-hmm. didn't do a good job. So if you remember, the red bandana that was found with the murder weapon was never tested for DNA. Well, recently it was finally tested. And results are a little weird and difficult to understand, in my opinion, so I'll do my best to explain it. Um, So the bandana had at least three people's DNA on it, one as the major contributor and two or more minor contributors. Seven out of 21 loci was connected to Jones, but that's not enough usually for police standards. So loci is a term used for the DNA markers 15 of which are generally used to help determine your DNA test results. So in this case, seven matched Jones. It was said that the other DNA contributors didn't necessarily match Jordan, but that it also wasn't able to rule him out. One, do you know anything about this? Because I know you're in the DNA realm. No, I know. I wish I knew more about it. But I mean, just from like what I've learned, I guess, in like the documentaries and stuff that I've read, there is a a number like you said just like 15 or Uh whatever and i know with like gsk when they were trying to when they use the familial dna Uh through like the dna websites um if one person had whatever 15 of these markers Uh it would mean that they were very very likely like a family member of like the person who did it so i know as much as that as far as like there needs to be a certain amount of markers but it is weird that I don't think it's that weird that there was three different people's DNAs. If he was staying at Jones's house Mm -hmm. and who knows who else might have also stayed there and laid there or whatever, and that Mm -hmm. that might have gotten on the bandana. So I don't think that's weird. One other thing to point out is that there was no saliva found on the bandana, which is odd because the bandana was worn over the gunman's mouth. 
as we know from wearing masks now, um, it gets, you know, kind of musty in there mm-hmm. sometimes. It's definitely collecting what's coming out of your mouth. Particles, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a high stress situation also of the carjacking and the murder uh, like that, it seems very unlikely that the bandana would test negative for any saliva. Mm-hmm. So in July 2020, Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter made a public announcement and said, Julius Jones murdered Paul Howell in cold blood in front of his sister and daughters. No celebrity imploration or profusion of misinformation will change that. Julius Jones had his day in court, which I don't like that statement because every person who's been wrongfully convicted technically had their Mm -hmm. day in court. (laughs) And we know that sometimes fails. Yeah. Hunter also said he spoke with the victim's family who said that they felt that no one was advocating on their behalf. And that I felt. Since starting this podcast, we've had the opportunity to talk to people on both sides of cases, which includes the victim's family. And sometimes it feels like their voice gets lost and forgotten. So I do want to try to keep them in mind when we are talking about any story we cover. But the clock is ticking to Jones's execution. Um, I've heard various potential dates on when this might be. Uh, One article mentioned that it might be at the end of this year, but I wasn't able to find information on that specifically. Hmm. So what is your verdict, Steph? So I'm going to try to be sensitive because I don't want people to like be up in arms about our opinions, but this is just an opinion based on what I just heard Sandy Mm -hmm. say. But at the very least, I think that he had an ineffective defense team. Absolutely. I think he didn't have a fair trial. Mm -hmm. I think the whole thing with the jury, Mm -hmm. which is something that we see very, very often in wrongful convictions. So... I think, like I said, at the core, at the very minimum, Mm -hmm. he deserves a new trial, I think. Mm -hmm. But based on the little evidence, quote unquote, that there is, I think I don't. I I guess you can't say whether he did or didn't do it. Mm -hmm. I'm leaning towards he didn't because Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's obviously very like what a coincidence that the one person who was staying in that room where everything was found was this other guy, Jordan, who happened to not have anything to do with the crime that was committed. You know, obviously you have Jones's family saying he he was with them the whole time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think I'm leaning towards no. I Mm -hmm. think, again, our justice system says that you're innocent until proven guilty. Right. And I don't think that they've proven that he's guilty. So I think he deserves a new trial. And Mm -hmm. if that's impossible or if it makes it harder for him, then I think that the push for clemency is something that needs to continue because I think it would be very, very unfortunate if someone died with this being their case and this being their evidence. And it also sounds like, did you say it was the mayor or the attorney general? Mm -hmm. It also sounds like there's some sort of like closed mindedness going on where it's like, nope, that trial's been clear. Like, that case is closed. Mm-hmm. He's going to die. Like, he's on death row, and that's where he's going to be. He had his day in court. He it's had his done. day in court. The thing is, like, it's not as easy. Like you said, it's not as easy as saying, like, 
well, they had their trials, so they're good because we know they're still wrongfully convicted people. Not only are they wrongfully convicted people, but like you and I can have our day in trial or our day in court, but it's going to look a lot different to someone who has money, who's able to get the best defense team, who mm-hmm. is able to, you know, so it's like my day in court, his day in court, and somebody else's day in court looks completely different. That's and true. I don't think that he had a just day in court. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I actually reached out to um, the team uh, that's behind pushing for Julius Jones's freedom. And they gave me a note from Julius um, to basically thank his supporters. Um, So this is what Julius Jones had to say. Dear supporters, sometimes it's difficult to unpack the true depth and details of my emotions as they can be suffocating, even paralyzing. So I can only fathom the burden my family's borne the past 21 years and counting, especially my mom. Fighting for my life with no true recourse, but prayer. Now it's been my own personal mantra to never wallow in my sadness or self-pity for longer than a night. To rise each morning with a newfound love and hope like the sun smile for me but that facade can mask the breadcrumbs that pile up leaving our house overrun by the true chaos life's bestowed upon us blocking blessings just before us and i believe step one is cleaning out my family's trauma-filled closet to make way and space for my homecoming so i beseech your assistance to procure professional cleansers and organizers to bring our healing and restorative vision to fruition May abundant favor, liberty, and victory be upon us. Mr. Julius Jones. That was very eloquent of him. So thank you, Julius, for sending that note and for his team uh, for providing that and speaking with us. So I have a few call to actions. Um, One, I highly recommend that you watch the Last Defense docuseries by Viola Davis. Um, It is on Hulu, but you can also find it on the Justice for Julius website. They have the link to all three parts of it. So you can just easily watch it on your computer or your phone. Um, Also on his website, you can find his change.org petition to sign. You can donate to his cause. You can purchase a shirt that says Justice for Julius. And you can email the parole board, which the website created a page um, to make it really easy to do. So I already sent one and it took like a minute to do. Yeah. A few minutes of your time to sign a petition or submit an email could make the difference in someone's life. Literally. Yeah, literally. Like life or death. So my Amplify Corner today um, is actually one of the authors of an article that I had mentioned earlier where I got my sources from. Her name is Cretina Baker, and she wrote The Terrifying Case of Julius Jones. After I read her article, I noticed that under her name, it said criminal justice reform advocate and speaker, which I found interesting because usually someone's title in these articles are like journalist or mm-hmm. you know something like that. Um, so I reached out to her and I spoke with her and she's very interesting and a very accomplished person. So I wanted to highlight her. Christina Baker is the senior organizer at Cut 50, which if you don't know what Cut 50 is, it is an organization with bipartisan efforts to cut crime and incarceration across all 50 states. They bring together leaders impacted by the criminal justice system with unlikely allies spanning the political divide to push for criminal justice solutions. Cretina's work has been committed to humanizing incarceration and working directly with lawmakers on policy solutions. Um, And then every time it says cut 50, it's hashtag cut 50. 
Ooh. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are the winningest criminal justice reform organization in recent history, having been responsible for passing the First Step Act, which was responsible for releasing 14,000 men and women from federal prisons to date. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a big feat. Having obtained a law degree, Kritina offers um, her legal expertise working as a consultant for attorneys, advocacy organizations, and grassroots political campaigns. Specifically, Kritina was a part of an amazing team that launched a digital campaign for Oklahoma death row inmate Julius Jones. The campaign went viral, which helped gain support from all the celebrities we had mentioned earlier. Kritina has a BA in communications from the University of West Florida and received her Juris Doctorate from Atlanta's John Marshall Law School. If Kritina is someone you'd like to get in contact with, you can reach her at tina at cut50.org and it's 50 with the numbers, 50. But also if you're interested in these type of reform uh, topics, I highly suggest you follow her on social media at Kritina Baker on both Instagram and Twitter. So thank you for the work you've been doing, Kritina. Thanks, Christina. <laughs> that is all that I have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, if you leave us a review on op- Apple Podcasts, send us a screenshot of it, and we will mail you a free Unjustly sticker. And stay tuned for next week. Steph will be covering a case on... Um, it's going to be the murder of Brandon Tina, which some of you may or may not know, but it's what... Um, the movie Boys Don't Cry with Hilary Swink um, was about, but it's a story of a transgender female who was murdered in a small town in Nebraska and just everything that goes into transgender crime, really, mm-hmm. and, and all of the things that are still going on today. So that one's going to be a really informative one. Yes. <laughs> it's a learning one. Thank you guys so much. See you next week. Bye. Bye. But prosecution said, nope, he's going to get 30. Promise. I said prosecution. Prosecution. (laughs) She's telling me this (laughs) (laughs) But the prosecution. Did I do it again? No, you said it right this time. But the prosecution. (laughs) (laughs) But the prosecution. Like, that was very aggressive. (laughs) Are you good? Although Jones was not there. Oh, that's a really short sentence. <laughs> Although Jones was not there. Period. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. Okay. And that's the end of the whole story. He just wasn't there. He just wasn't there. And so then nothing <laughs> happened. A few days later, the Suburban was found in a grocery store. Grocering? Oh, the grocering. No, grocering is the act of going to the grocery oh. store. Wait, really? No, I don't. Oh. <laughs> you made that sound so sounds believable. Right? I was like, dang, I'm always grocering. <laughs> it's a Mexican thing. Ketchup? Yeah. Ketchup. It's, it's ketchup. That's what I'm saying. No, you're saying, no, you're ketchup, saying ketchup. Like ketchup. Like ketchup. Like ketchup. Like ketchup. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's ketchup. It's ketchup. Ketchup.